Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. God loves us in ways that we can't even fathom. And because of that great love, He desires to have everlasting fellowship with us, that we would be part of that kingdom of heaven. But this brings up a question, a question that's often asked, what will heaven be like? Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, in a message titled, The God Who is Rich in Mercy. Now, here's Pastor Brian. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the first three verses of this chapter, verses that we looked at previously, we saw how men and women are by nature hopelessly lost, dead in trespasses and sins, in league with the devil and under his dominion, children of wrath and destined to eternal damnation. This is our state by nature. And there's nothing that you could do about it. There's nothing that I could do about it. There's nothing that anyone else could do about it. Apart from an act of God, we would have remained in an absolutely hopeless state. But the good news and Paul's focus here, as you remember, in this portion of the letter is good news. He's wanting us to understand in the greatest way possible how glorious the gospel is. So as I pointed out, he, he paints a, a dark background so that when he comes to telling the story of the gospel, it's so much brighter when seen in contrast with where we've been. And so these great words having declared our hopeless state, these great words in verse four, but God, but God who is rich in mercy. You know, many places in scripture, we find this type of a thing being communicated where the situation seemed hopeless. And really it would have been unless God had intervened, but we find these little but gods. And so today... We want to look at these verses, and in doing so, we're going to see, first of all, God's motive, or what moved God to do what he did, and secondly, we're going to see his objective, what, what his ultimate aim is in doing what he did, and then thirdly, 
we'll consider briefly where we are destined to, where we're headed because of what God has done. And so what was God's motive? What was the driving factor behind this intervention on the part of God? Well, here Paul assembles four words to express the origins of God's saving initiative. He writes of God's mercy, love, grace, and kindness. You see, what we need to understand is that God was motivated to do what he did. God was motivated to intervene and to save us, not because we deserved it at all, not because we were even hoping that it might happen. All of this resulted simply because of the goodness of God. God was motivated out of the kindness of his own being. It's because God is gracious. It's because God is is kind. That's the reason why he intervened in our situation. In our hopeless state, God had compassion on us. He's merciful and compassionate. And in offering us salvation through Christ, that is the greatest demonstration of his mercy and his compassion. This is the biblical picture of God, a God full of mercy and compassion, a God who's anxious to forgive and reluctant to judge and to punish. And I think if we stopped and thought about it and didn't just react so quickly to some of the things we see, if we stopped and thought about it, I think we could conclude that God is these things just by what we see. Because think about it. Humanity, mankind, the vast majority of people today on planet Earth, the 7 billion people or so, are living their lives with no regard to God whatsoever, with no regard to his laws, with no regard to his will. And yet, in a general sense, people are living blessed lives. God continues to bless despite the fact that we ignore him, we take advantage of him, we take him for granted, we snub our noses at him, we shake our fist at him. And yet, for the most part, judgments from God are very few and far between. Now, put yourself for a moment in a position Just thinking about it, just think if there was somebody that treated you like that continually, regardless of all of your gestures of kindness and your benevolent acts, if somebody just continued uh, not just to snub you, but to to shake their fist in your face or um, to, you know, do, do something even more offensive. Now, this, this is what humanity has been doing to God forever. That, that's what we've been doing. If you really stop and think about it. But then think, think about how infrequent the judgments of God have been in, in the world. I mean, we, we could count them on one hand. We go back to, well, the original judgment that took place in the garden. We could go back to the flood that took place in the days of Noah. We have another example in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the, the example of God judging the children of Israel or the, or the Canaanites. 
But really, apart from that, and those were, those were hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years in between the judgments. And then we've been living for 2,000 years in this period of grace where there hasn't been any direct judgment of God poured out upon the world, yet there's, there's been this constant hostility coming from man toward God. So you see, if you just think about it in those terms, these passages that we just read, they become quite obviously true. God is full of compassion. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. We are much more swift to anger. I've often thought to myself and said to God, God, if I were you, I would not let that person do that. God, I wouldn't let that person talk about you like that. I, I would deal with that person, but God doesn't. He, he allows them to go on. He's gracious. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, even when we were in league with the devil, even when we were the children of wrath, he intervened. But God, he stepped in because of his great mercy. Now we see this truth about God, his goodness, his kindness. We see all of this. This is all these truths are fleshed out in the life of Jesus. So we have these statements in the Old Testament. We have this, this picture that develops from the statements of the Lord and the prophets. But then Jesus comes and he, he puts flesh on it. And so we see in Jesus what God is like. From him we learn how God acts toward people. The penitent will find him merciful. The self-condemned will find him generous and kind. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, considerate. To the weak, gentle. To the stranger, hospitable. This is what we see in Jesus. Jesus went about doing good and treating people respectfully and lovingly and kindly. And of course, Jesus was the physical manifestation of God. So in Jesus, we see ultimately all of these things coming together and manifested to us. So again, what was God's motive? What, what drove him to do what he did? It was out of the goodness and kindness of his own being that he intervened to save us from our hopeless state. But what was his objective? What is God aiming at in doing this? Well, Paul goes on and he tells us that we have been made alive, raised up, and seated together in the heavenly places. Now, these three verbs refer to the three successive historical events in the saving career of Jesus. You have, well, you could go back one and you could go to the death of Christ. But then, of course, Christ was raised up or uh, he was made alive, resurrected from the dead. Then he was raised up, which is a reference to the ascension. And then he was seated at the right hand of God. Now, we know that was true about Christ, but what Paul is telling us here is that the same thing is also true about us. 
You see, what the Bible teaches is that what happened to Jesus literally happened to us spiritually, and what has literally happened to him will happen to us in the future. So Jesus was raised from the dead. We have been raised from the dead and will be raised from the dead. We've been brought to life spiritually, but there's a day when even the, the bodies that have died of the saints will be raised up again. And just as Jesus ascended, we will ascend into heaven. Just as Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God, we will be seated, but it's already happened in a spiritual sense. So spiritually speaking, we're already there. And since we're already there spiritually, that's really the guarantee to us that we will one day be there entirely in, in our, the, the entirety of our being. This is our destiny. So what Paul's doing again here in this passage, for those of you that have been with us as we've been studying, he's once again wanting us to know the certainty of our heavenly destination. It's certain, just as certain as Jesus is sitting there at the right hand of God, we're spiritually there with him already. And that gives us the guarantee that we're going to be there with him completely in the future. And so the objective really is that God desires to have everlasting fellowship with his children. And he has done everything that was needed to make sure that that happens. So this is God's objective. Why did he do all of this? Because he wants to have everlasting fellowship with us. Now, that's God's heart toward humanity. God loves us in ways that we can't even fathom. And because of that great love, he desires to have everlasting fellowship with us. That's what all of this is about that we would be with him forever in his kingdom, that we would be part of that kingdom of heaven. But this brings up a question, a question that's often asked. What will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? Now, the seventh verse gives us a little bit of insight into what heaven will be like. But let's think about that for a moment. What will heaven be like? It's interesting that the Bible gives us little glimpses, and it never really gives us a, a complete picture. And I think the reason for that is obvious. The reason is there's no picture that could do it justice. Paul the Apostle, who had an experience of being caught up into the very presence of God in heaven, when he revived and he came back, he said he saw things that would be unlawful to try to put in human language. So because human language could never fully do it justice, God has not seen fit to really develop it. But just to give us little glimpses here and there, we have a negative descriptions of heaven and we have positive descriptions of heaven. The negative descriptions are those descriptions that tell us the things that won't be there. So what will not be in heaven? Well, there will be no death in heaven. No death. Death will be a thing of the past. It will no longer be an issue. There will be no sorrow in heaven. There will be no crying in heaven, no tears in heaven. There will be no pain, no physical pain, no emotional pain. Those things will have passed away. There will be no sin. There will be no evil. 
the horrific things that we see happening in our world today, none of that will be there. None of that kind of evil will have any place in heaven. Those are the the negative descriptions. But then there's the positive descriptions. The positive descriptions, we know that there's a beautiful city. There's the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem that's described, that comes down from God out of heaven. But what we're told in verse 7, it's the, the activity of heaven, really. So th- this is what's going to be happening. Lo- lots of things, obviously, are going to be happening. You know, some people get an idea about heaven that it's going to be kind of boring. You know, they've got these clouds that you sit on, and they hand you out these harps, and you just pluck away on that thing forever. And wh- where anybody ever came up with that picture, I have no idea. But they certainly did not get it from the pages of Scripture. But haven't we heard people even say, haven't we seen posters and things that say, man, I don't want to go to heaven. That's not going to be any fun there. I want to go to hell where the party is. No, no, no. Uh, The party's in heaven. There's no party in hell. Just so you know that right up front. So what's the activity? Well, there's going to be lots of activity. Think of all the amazing and wonderful activities that we do here on earth all the amazing and wonderful activities that we do on earth, all the enjoyable things that we can experience through nature and through friendships and through God's creation. Well, heaven is going to be like a billion times better than what we have here. So there will be all kinds of activity, all the creativeness and all of the abilities that we have here. They're only going to be heightened there. So, you know, you look at the world, it's a pretty amazing Thing to consider what man has been able to accomplish. But when you think of man unleashed from sin and living in the fullness of God's blessing, just think what the, the possibilities will be in the future. So there will be all of that kind of activity, but the activity of God, amazingly, is this. The activity of heaven from the standpoint of God will be God showing the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what's going to be happening forever? Well, listen, forever, it's going to take forever, actually. Only eternity will suffice for the complete display of the surpassing riches of God's grace. Forever and ever and ever, God is going to be showing us how much he loves us. He's going to be unfolding for us the riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. So in closing, when it seemed there was no hope for man, God's mercy, love, and grace broke through. That's the story of the Bible. The picture of man in the Bible is he's in a hopeless state. But the gospel, the good news is that love broke through. God broke through. God intervened. He did an intervention. We're familiar with that idea, right? Today, intervention. You have have somebody that you love in your family who's maybe addicted to drugs or something like that or has some issue in their life that's destroying their life. What happens? The family gets together and say, we got to do an intervention. 
What's the purpose of the intervention? The purpose of the intervention is to save them. We don't want to see them go down this road. We don't want to see them destroy themselves or their loved ones. We want to see them rescued. That's what God did. He did an intervention. He came from heaven to earth. And it was his mercy that led him to do this. It was his grace. It was his love. That same mercy, love, and grace is here to break through your sin and misery today. If you find yourself in that place still, if you're there where you recognize that it's a hopeless situation, and many people are right there today. The tragedy for many people is they don't realize they're there, but when you come to realize it, when you come to understand that this is a hopeless situation, there's, there's no way out of this for me. This is when you are then the, the prime candidate for the intervention of God. You know, when, when people are doing interventions, there has to be the, the willingness on the person that they're intervening on behalf of, they, they have to re- receive that intervention. If they don't, if they just get angry and stomp out and say, you people are crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm, I'm not any of those things. I'm perfectly fine. Well, there's nothing you can do for them. But it's the person who says, you're right. Yes, my life is a wreck. Yes, I am miserable. Yes, I am destroying myself. Please help me. That's when the help comes. The same is true with God. The moment you recognize I need an intervention, I need some power from outside to come and deliver me from this. God is there with his love and he's ready to break through. And all you need to do is turn to Jesus. And when you turn to Jesus, you'll find mercy and kindness and friendliness and forgiveness and love. That's what you'll find. So wherever you're at today, if you're anywhere but in that place where you're experiencing God's love and grace, you can move into a whole new position today by simply turning to Christ. And if you haven't done that, I urge you to do it. And of course, many of you have done that. Many of you are believers. But let me just say this in closing to you. Maybe you're in a situation right now that just seems impossible. Maybe you're in some kind of difficulty and you think, I'm going to go under. I'm never going to survive. I'm not going to make it. Well, remember these two words, but God. Bring God into the equation and know that he is there and he's going to make a way. He's going to do something. He's going to take care of you. Now, let's join Pastor Brian as he shares about this month's resource from Back to Basics. Hi, I want to tell you about a book that I think is going to be revolutionary for many, many men and and perhaps for some women too. Most of you know that we have a massive pornography problem in the United States. It's not limited to the United States. It's a worldwide problem. And my friend Ray Ortland has written a book that I think is going to help so many people in dealing with the subject of pornography. The book is called The Death of Porn, 
And the subtitle is Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. I had the privilege of reading the book before it was published, and I was able to write a little recommendation in it. And it is the best book I've ever read on the topic because it comes at it from the angle of our identity in Christ and who we are. And because of who we are, we don't need these kinds of things that we often gravitate toward and end up in bondage to. So my recommendation for this month is The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. Again, this month's resource is a book titled The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. You can order the book The Death of Porn by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Death of Porn by Ray Ortland. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ephesians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.